Let us pray. Again, O most merciful, O most merciful Father, draw near to us by your Spirit that we might know you. Enable us, O Lord, to respond, to receive what you are giving to us, that we might believe the works that Jesus has done. That we might go beyond believing the works that he has done and believing he himself, that he is in you, Father, and you, Father, are in him. And that from you both the Holy Spirit comes to us. And that He dwells with us and in us. Give us faith, O Lord. Give us trust to walk before You according to the path that You have set before us. That Your Spirit would make Your Word come to life in our hearts that we would more and more be brought to life. To know You and Your Son and the Spirit whom You have given All of this we do ask through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What is your name? What is your name? Isn't it a funny question to ask that on Pentecost Sunday? What is your name? This question is the very first question in a catechism in the 1662 prayer book. When you flip through it, you get to a section about confirmation and it gives the catechism. And that's the first question. What is your name? It's not very exciting, is it? As opposed to the Westminster Shorter Catechism that everyone knows about because of John Piper. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify and know God and rejoice in God forever. Sorry for my poor remembering of that. Or the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only hope in this life? My only hope in this life is Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Then you get to us Anglicans and we're like, what's your name? Our first question in our catechism, what is your name? I always thought that was such an odd way to begin the catechism. But then, as with all catechisms, you don't stop with one question. You continue to move forward. And the second question explains to us why we have to know what our name is. The second question is, Who gave you this name? Who gave you this name? And the response is, My godfathers and godmothers, in my baptism, wherein I was made a member of Christ, the child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom of God. The prayer book begins with, What is your name? And immediately moves, Who gave you this name? And in good Anglican tradition, it focuses in on baptism. For in baptism, with every baptism, whether a child or an adult, During the baptism, we say, what is your name? What is the name of this person? Who is this person who is coming to be baptized? And the sponsors declare that person's name. The godfathers, godmothers are just sponsors. They tell tell me what the person's name is so that when I baptize them, I will baptize them in their name. I will say, I baptize you, John, or you, Michael, or you, Amy, or you, Rachel, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are given your name in baptism. But even more than that, not only are you given your name, but your name is not your own. Your name is given to you. Someone else tells you your name. I don't decide my name. I didn't decide I was going to be Jeremiah. My mom and dad named me Jeremiah. For the vast majority of us, our names have been given to us by our parents or by someone who is parental toward us 
who is in charge of us. They named us. I didn't name myself. My name comes from outside of me and is applied to me by the people around me. I don't decide my name. God in His full and complete way of doing things has determined that names will come from outside of us. When you look at Scripture everywhere, no one claims a name for themselves except for God Himself and those who rebel against God, as we'll hear about here in a minute with the Tower of Babel. Those who claim a name for themselves are always pushing back against God. But those who are in line with God, who are following God, who are trusting in God, receive a new name from Him. Jacob becomes Israel. Abram becomes Abraham. They had moments where God distinctly changed the name that they had been given in order that they would go on to do the work that He had given them to do. But for us, our names come to us in many ways in baptism. That whether we were officially named in our baptisms or we had our name before that, in a way, that moment of baptism within the community of the church, we are named by our sponsors, by our godfathers and our godmothers. In that moment, we become a new creation and that name is reapplied from outside of us to make us who we are now in Christ. And even though life is full of confusing moments, life goes this way and that way, we have a name given to us by someone else. And in the midst of that confusion of life, the Holy Spirit comes to us and gives to us a name before God the Father. We get named by the Holy Spirit before the Father when He comes to be with us. Hearing that, we're going to step back and look at Genesis 11. We're going to move through a bit of all of our Scriptures. But I want us to go back that as we consider the confusion of life to see the confusion of Babel. There was something confusing happening here at Babel in Genesis 11. You see, everyone had the same language there. The flood had happened a few chapters before. The earth had dried up. Noah and his three sons and their families had left the ark. And God gave them the command in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 1, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we get a list of descendants in chapter 10. Each of Noah's three sons had various other children. And they began being about the face of the earth. However, something happens in chapter 11. These sons and grand, these grandchildren of Noah become confused. The grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, who knows how many generations are all here piled up together. They become confused about what their calling is, about what God is desiring them to do. And they begin migrating east, and they come to a place called the plain, of, a plain in the land of Shinar, which today we believe might be modern-day Iraq, somewhere in Iraq, somewhere near where the city of Babel actually existed or the city of Babylon actually existed. Tradition says that that is where the Tower of Babel was. And they settled there and decided to build a city for themselves. They were confused about the work that God had given them to do. They confused God's command. They warp it. He had told Noah to multiply and fill the earth, and instead they stay with one another. They don't spread out. They don't cover the face of the earth. Instead, they stay together and they decide to build a city and live on top of one another, to live with each other, 
They band together and they refuse to spread out and fill the earth. God's Word becomes confused because they disobey. He clearly said, fill the earth and they don't do it. They cling to each other and they build a city and they build a tower that will reach up to heaven. A tower with its top in the heavens. But why do they do this? They say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us claim a name. Let us stake a claim so that the world will know who we are. We will declare who we are. We will be who we are over and against who God has told us to be. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They want to claim a name. They want to make a great name. They want to be known throughout the whole earth. They don't want to be dispersed and scattered. But what is this name they desire to make for themselves? It's one of their own choosing. They want to choose their name. It's one they will decide upon. One that they will make on their own apart from God's commandment. They'll become the ones who defied God. They'll be known as the ones who defied God. Everywhere before this, in these few short chapters before chapter 11, everything receives its name from someone else. God names Adam. Adam names all the animals. And Eve. Eve names Cain and Abel. They name Seth. Each generation names its children. No one names themselves. No one, I don't name myself. Noah didn't name himself. And so they want to make a name for themselves. They've confused the commandment of God. They've confused themselves by pursuing their own desires over and against God's will, over and against God's desire. And they will build a tower that reaches into the heavens. What is this tower? All of our children's books depict this great tall tower, taller than the Eiffel Tower, taller than the Tower of Pisa, trying to reach up to the sky, taller than our greatest buildings that we've built with hundreds of people traveling up and down the tower, moving the bricks up to the top. But that's probably not really what they were building. It's translated as tower, but in that area of the world, in that ancient Near Eastern area, is probably more like a ziggurat or a pyramid-type shape. Not this all-encompassing, reaching, literally reaching to the heavens building, but a big pyramid or ziggurat, because those were the temples in the Middle East. The ziggurat was where... Heaven and earth met for the ancient Near Eastern peoples. It was wide at the bottom representing the width of the earth and narrow at the top representing the throne of the God that they were worshiping. They were a temple. They were a place where people would go and worship some deity or some other deity. They were the place that represented the meeting point of heaven and earth together. Just like the temple for the Jews was the place where God met His people. But it wasn't in the shape of a ziggurat. It was a square building. It had a square, a cube at the back of it that was the Holy of Holies, the very place where heaven and earth came together and interlocked, where God's throne was placed upon the Ark of the Covenant, where God's feet would sit upon that Ark that contained His covenant for the people. But the ancient Near Eastern ziggurats were more like pyramids. As you climb from the bottom of you leave the earth and you climb toward heaven. And you, when you reach the top, you are in the heavens. You are in the heavenly places. 
And so these people wanted to make a way to heaven for themselves. They wanted to make a pathway to get to heaven on their own terms. To leave behind earth and to go into the heavenlies themselves. To go into the holy place where the deity existed on their own terms. That's the name they wanted. The ones who became the heavenly ones, in fact. Not just ones who defied God, but ones who defied God in such a way that they became heavenly ones. They became heavenly beings. Ones who could traverse both heaven and earth. Who could go when they wanted and when they pleased into such great places. They would become like little gods before all the world. Wasn't that Satan's promise to Eve? You'll become like gods. You'll become like God Himself if you eat of this fruit. Here the temptation is you'll become like God when you build this tower into the heavens where you can travel into the heavenly places. You can declare yourself as God. You can be a ruling mighty deity over the earth. But God came down. I love that. Their tower is so small that God still has to leave the heavenly places and come to where they are. He comes down to look at this puny tower that they're building that they think is going to be this great and glorious tower. But He sees what they are doing, that they are attempting to reach heaven on their own. They are attempting to reach into heaven itself and declare themselves to be little gods. It's only the beginning, he says, of what they will do. And if they accomplish this, there will be nothing that they can't do. It's kind of like Adam and Eve having to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of the tree of life. They took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God kicked them out of the garden because for them to then go and take a from the tree of life would be for them to be sealed in immortality and evil. To not have a path out. That death was a way of escape from the sin that we have. Death became the way of escape. The way of healing. The way to get away from our sin. And for us, for Adam and Eve to have partaken of the tree of life would be for them to be sealed in the sin that they had committed. Likewise, for these people to complete this tower would be for them to seal themselves in this position of being little gods before all the earth. And so God says, let us confuse their language so that they can't understand each other. And so He confused the languages of the earth. And the people had to disperse. They had to then go and spread across the whole earth because they couldn't understand each other. The groups that could, they went off to plant their own places, to build new cities, to build new farms, to build new villages, to create new cultures based within their language group. And the people were forced to spread across the earth. And so God brought about confusion. Out of their confusion of God's commandment, He brought confusion of languages to accomplish His commandment, which was to spread and multiply over the earth and subdue it, to take over the earth, to go across all of the earth. And we read this on this day because there the languages are multiplied and the people become confused because on this day there is a confusion of Pentecost as well. Pentecost, that day that is the 50th day after Passover, the 50th day after the resurrection for us. It's believed that the law was given on the 50th day after Passover when the Israelites left Egypt. Exodus 19.1 says that Israel entered the wilderness of Sinai in the third month after the Passover. The third month after the Passover would include the 50th day after the Passover. And so, tradition sprang up that God spoke from the mountain, that He descended upon the mountain and began speaking to the people on the 50th day, that He gave His law on the 50th day. And so, it's wonderful that here the Spirit descends and the people speak a new word from God. They speak of God's Word. They speak of His coming to save us through Christ. 
They speak of the great acts of God. But even more, the Spirit descends as tongues of fire upon His disciples. A mighty rushing wind and then fire forming over them. Each disciple, a tongue of fire appearing. And so often I go back to the Israelites in the wilderness with the cloud by day and the fire by night over the whole people and it becoming divided amongst each individual now. But something else struck me as I was studying was that what happened at Sinai? A connection to Mount Sinai to the giving of the law, but God came down on the mountain and lightnings and thunderings and a dark, thick cloud. And the mountain burned with fire. The mountain was burning with fire unto the heart of heaven. And God spoke out of that fire to the people. He gave them His Word. He gave them His Ten Commandments. He gave to them the covenant that they should hear what He would do. That they should hear what they should do. That is how God came to Sinai, was in fire upon that mountain. We heard even in our psalm today that if He touches the earth, it will smoke and flames will go up. Because of who God is. And that's what happened at the mountain at Sinai. And likewise, here at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends and He becomes as fire upon the disciples. And He causes them to speak in many languages. They don't know that they're even speaking other languages. I'm not sure, but they just start speaking the Word of God and telling them what God has accomplished. And all these Jews from all over the world who've gathered for Passover and have stayed until Pentecost and are celebrating and feasting and giving to the temple, they suddenly hear these Galileans, these wild Galileans speaking their native tongues. These Parthians and Medes, these Arabs, these Romans, these Cappadocians, people from Phrygia and Pamphylia, from Egypt and Lebanon and Cyrene, people who had various kinds and different languages. As their native tongue, though they shared Greek in common in many ways, and Latin in some parts of the world at that time, they mostly all knew Greek at least, but they say, they're not speaking Greek, they're speaking my native language. And someone else says, well, they're, no, they're speaking my native language. That person's speaking Parthian. This other person, well, this other person's speaking in the language of the Cyrenes. Another person, well, the language of the Medes and Persians is being preached by Peter. What's going on here? And they're confused because they're hearing the works of God in their own language. And there is confusion at Pentecost because of this. They don't know how to respond. What does this mean, they say? But some say, well, they're just drunk. They must be drunk to be speaking like this. Ironically, that they would say, oh, well, they're drunk, but they're perfectly speaking someone else's language. They're trying to push away the work of the Spirit. Who's ever heard of a drunk person suddenly speaking a language that they had never learned? But Peter catches on and he stands up before the people and he begins preaching. And says, we're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. Come on, people. This isn't a time to be drunk. This is a time to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit for us. This is what Joel has prophesied, what Joel has promised. And we come out of that confusion of Pentecost into the blessings of Pentecost. That the Spirit would descend upon God's people, that He would be poured out. God Himself would come to dwell with and in His people in a new way, in a different way than before. If he, the Spirit would be poured upon all flesh, the sons and the daughters would prophesy, the young men would see visions, the old men would dream dreams. The Word of God would go out. That's what all that language ultimately comes down to. Prophesying, seeing visions, dreaming dreams is things that are going to be told and spoken of before the people. 
We have received the Holy Spirit and received the blessings of Pentecost this day. That day, 2,000 years ago, and even today, the Spirit continually is being poured out upon us that out of the confusion of our life, the Spirit comes and is with us and is our helper, as Jesus says in our Gospel lesson today. I will ask the Father, He says in 1416, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. You know Him, for He dwells with you. He abides with you even now. But He will also be in you. He will come to indwell you. Another Helper. The blessings of Pentecost is that God Himself comes to be with His people in a new way. He comes and indwells us. The third person of the Trinity bringing the Father and the Son to us. For it can be no other than the, second, than the third person of the Trinity. Then a true person in the divine Godhead. The Spirit is not just a force or a power of God. The Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, for He is another helper, one who acts, one who helps. And He's another one, similar to Jesus, like Jesus. As Jesus is a helper to God's people, here is another helper that Jesus is giving from the Father, that Jesus is sending from the Father that comes through the Son. The paraclete, He calls Him in Greek. The paraclete. Many English translations say the helper. And this is the blessings of Pentecost is that this helper comes alongside us. That word paraclete could easily just literally be translated as something like called to one side. One who comes alongside of. One called to be beside another. One dictionary defined it as one called to another's aid. The paraclete is the one who comes alongside God's people. He comes alongside and helps us. He guides us. He leads us. He is our assistant in giving aid, but so much more. This word paraclete gets translated in various ways throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament. We hear here, helper. And this is probably the most general term that you could use for what is a helper. One who helps. One who does something for another. The helper comes to be with us, to help us. But this Helper does everything for us. Sometimes Paraclete is translated as Comforter. The one who comforts, who comes to give consolation in the midst of grief and loneliness. To give us comfort as we wrestle with the struggles of life. As we walk through life and deal with things all around us, He comforts us and strengthens us and helps us by being a Comforter. He also is a Counselor. He teaches us. The Holy Spirit comes and reveals the truth of God to the apostles, helping them to remember all the truths that Jesus had spoke to them. And likewise for us, as the apostles wrote down those truths of God and they have been delivered to us through Holy Word, in Holy Word, being the Scriptures themselves, the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds to understand and counsels us to know what the Scriptures mean. He becomes an advocate for us. One of the most general other translations. Paraclete occurs in 1 John 2, where it speaks of Jesus being the paraclete of God's people. We translate it as advocate there, for He is standing before God the Father and interceding for us. But the Holy Spirit is an advocate for us as well. An attorney who intercedes before another on our behalf. The Holy Spirit doesn't intercede for us before the Father, but He intercedes for us against ourselves. 
When our conscience accuses us, when the devil comes and accuses our conscience and speaks through our conscience to accuse us of our sin, to say that we are not forgiven, the Holy Spirit acts as an advocate to say what Jesus has done applies to you. The work of Jesus is for you. Cling to it and receive it and know His forgiveness. The Spirit advocates against the devil when He accuses us of sin. He is our counselor. He is our comforter. He is our advocate who teaches us and turns us from our sins. Who teaches us to confess our sins. To admit, yes, I have sinned, but I know the blood of Jesus. I know the work of Jesus. He is the one who has redeemed me, who has taken my sin away from me. The Spirit advocates and comes to our side. He aids us. But He is also an intercessor for us. He intercedes for us by giving us words when we don't know the words to speak. He creates in us new life in order that we would draw near to the Father, in order that we could approach the throne of grace, and He gives us the words to pray. Even when we don't know what to pray, He lifts up our words, our groanings to the Father through Jesus. He becomes our intercessor, guiding us in our prayers, helping us to know what to pray. One paraphrase of the Bible translates paraclete as simply friend. The Holy Spirit acts as our friend, being with us in the midst of daily life, walking with us through the ups and the downs, granting us life to go about our routines. All of this is Him acting as helper, renewing us, transforming us, and leading and guiding us in order that we would know the new name that He has given to us. And all of this as the Spirit comes to us through baptism, where we receive our Christian name, you might say, for I was named Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit comes in the midst of that baptism and applies the name of God to me. He gives me the name of God. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in which we are baptized is God placing His name upon us. And that is the name that we receive ultimately in baptism. It's the name of the Trinity placed upon us. Because God comes and claims us as His own. He has made us His own by giving us His Spirit. By giving us the Holy Spirit, sending Him through Jesus, He comes and unites us to Jesus, unites us to the Father through His indwelling presence. That we can speak to the Father, that we can pray to the Father. Not as rebellious youth before the Father, but as adopted children of the Father. For the Spirit comes and as He applies the name of God to us and gives us that new name, He makes us children of God. He unites us that we might be brothers and sisters of Jesus and thus becoming adopted become sons and daughters of God the Father. We become children of God because the Spirit comes to dwell with us. That confusion of Pentecost with the Spirit being poured out leads to this great and glorious blessing of the Holy Spirit being our helper who unites us to Christ that we would become adopted children of God who would have the name of God placed upon us, us weak sinners who are transformed into glorious saints. We receive that name and we are transformed by the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God acts towards us to make us new. To make us become, in the fullness of time, complete children of God. 
We're united to Jesus and thus to the God of all creation. We become partakers of the divine nature through Jesus by the Spirit indwelling us. We receive God's name over and above all other things by this gift of the Spirit given to us. And so it's right for the prayer book to begin with, what is your name? For that drives us to recognize that we have received a name apart from ourselves. And the ultimate name that we are gifted with is the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For in that, when we live in that name, we live in the realm of forgiveness. We live in the realm of redemption. We live in the realm of being transformed day in and day out to turn from our sins and turn to the Father who has gifted us with all that we need by giving us this very Holy Spirit. And so rejoice, O children of God. Rejoice, O sons and daughters of the Most High God. For you have been given the Holy Spirit of God. Receive Him and know that God's name is placed upon you, that you would be renewed and transformed and made into a new kind of people, a people who live like Jesus, a people who follow after Jesus, a people who pursue and desire to know the Word of God, a people who have the help of the Spirit to resist the sin within and to resist the sin without because we have been transformed. And to be a people who can live in the forgiveness of the sins that we commit. Who as we receive forgiveness, we are changed and transformed more and more. And so rejoice and receive the power and the blessing of the Spirit this day. For on this day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out in you to fill us and to guide us and to renew us always and evermore. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.